holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the church in Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Kids, you, first of all, are dismissed to worship kids style if you want to head on out. Parents, you're welcome to send out your kids um, to worship kids style or keep them here with you. There's also nursery care um, for kids ages up to three. We are continuing diving back into our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Um, Just a reminder, if you weren't with us two weeks ago when we preached our first sermon on Revelation 1, it might be useful to you, not necessarily for this sermon, but just in general, to go back on the website and listen to that sermon because we spent a bunch of time in that sermon talking about big picture, how to read the book of Revelation. That said, um, we are now going to turn to the beginning of chapter 2 and let's pray as we dig into God's word. God and Father, I pray that you would be with us now as we seek to understand your word and apply it to our hearts. Be with all of us sinners and let us sit under its authority. Be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray all of this in our great Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It ain't the good old days and it never was. That is a quote that I heard attributed to Mark Twain, although looking for it this week, I couldn't find where he said it. But certainly, it seems like a sentiment that I appreciate. It ain't the good old days, and it never was. I think we've always been prone to think about there was some time, right? Think there was, we see the problems in our world today, and we see all the issues we have, and we think, surely it wasn't always like this. 
Surely there was some point in time where things weren't a mess. But the more you probe, the more you realize things have always kind of been a mess. I mean, if you think about it in history, right, what are the good old days? Is it like, is it like the 1950s? Maybe a lot of us, you know, in this place in the country and stuff would say that, except, you know, for like all the casual attitudes towards racism and domestic violence and also the Cold War and the fact we were teetering on the precipice of nuclear annihilation. Or maybe it's like the 1800s, you know, like Laura Ingalls Wilder books and all of those good old prairie living days, which sound great too, except for, you know, the cholera and the famines and starvation and also like the civil war and slavery and all of those things. And you could keep going. No point in history is without significant issues. Now, there are also good things about those times, and that's part of why I think we think about the good old days, and it's appropriate to recognize good things about the past, But it has never been the good old days. There have always been terrible problems for as long as human beings have been sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And that is as true of the church as it is of the world as a whole. There are plenty of ways the church in our world is a mess and we can recognize them full of people who claim the name of Jesus without letting it change their lives. The gospel is rarely preached and rich guys sell prosperity on television instead and whole denominations have for decades not been willing to defend even the basic truths of Christianity. There's lots of issues in the church today. But again, we can't slip into that same golden age thinking. There is no point in the church's history, the more you learn it, where there haven't also been significant problems. And the easiest way to think about that is to think about the earlier, the, the early church, the church in the New Testament. Because if there's going to be a golden age, this is it, right? When the apostles are leading the church and Jesus has just gone into heaven. Except the more you read the New Testament, the more you realize that the early church was also a huge mess. I mean, go read 1 Corinthians where Paul yells at this church for like 10 different things, including their divisions and their exclusion of the poor and their toleration of the most obscene sexual sins and their basic ignorance of doctrines like the resurrection, right? That's the church in Corinth. Go read um, about Paul's dispute with Peter, where he ends up having to publicly rebuke Peter for his racism. Listen to what John and Jude have to say about false teachers. Or look at these letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you weren't with us two weeks ago when we started this series, John has this special relationship with these seven churches in what today would be Western Turkey. I'll put a map up on the screen to remind you, but John is a prisoner on the island of Patmos, if you remember, and then he writes the book of Revelation specifically to these seven churches. You can see them and how they're kind of clustered together there. But As we look at the letters, which we're going to do this week and then for the next two weeks, you can really break the churches down into three categories, okay? First of all, the first group is that a couple of the churches are what we would call struggling but faithful, right? Looking from from the outside, they're really struggling and having a hard time, but Jesus says, you are being faithful. And then the next group are three churches that are compromised but not fully lost. Um, They each have some strengths but Jesus calls them out for these really major failings. And then the last two are churches that are actually under judgment, where not only are they compromised, but Jesus essentially threatens to come and remove their churchness from them and to, you know, take away their very identity as a church. And I put that chart up there, both A, to kind of give you a sense of where we're going in the next couple weeks, but B, to say that is the golden age of the church. <laughs> 
right? Like, that is what the seven churches who had been led by the Apostle John within a few decades, within about 60 years at most of Jesus' resurrection, that is their condition. It's not the good old days, and it never was. Now, I saying all of that, to be clear, that shouldn't be an excuse, right? There is one way of thinking that says, well, given that, we should just not try, and that's the wrong conclusion to draw. We ought to seek to grow in faithfulness because if we're not seeking to grow in faithfulness and be, you know, and grow more like Jesus, that's only going to get worse, right? <laughs> well, it's never been the good old days, like, it can get worse, but the reason I say that is because it means that we need a vision for the church that isn't just thinking about some point in history, it's not thinking about some single human institution. We need a vision for the church that is from Jesus, where he tries to speak to us about what the church is supposed to be like. And so that is what, in many ways, from these seven letters, we're going to try to do over the next few weeks. We're going to work through each of them and talk about where they are, what Jesus says about them, and see the ways he challenges them and the hope that he offers to them and to us. And as we do that, I think we're going to see some of ourselves, both maybe in successes and in failures, in these seven churches. So that's the plan. Let's start with the church at Ephesus. So start reading in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, each letter, you'll notice as we work through them, has a common structure, and they always start with this word of greeting from Jesus to the church, where he calls out a specific piece of the vision back in John 1. In John 1, John has this vision of Jesus in the heavenly throne room. A piece of that vision is spoken to the church. Um, and so in this case, it's Jesus who holds the seven stars, which represent the seven angels of the churches, and he's walking among the seven lamp lampstands, which represent the seven churches. So he says, listen, these are the words of the one who rules over the church and is in the midst of the church. And then this is what he says. Start in verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So that sounds good, right? <laughs> like, you know, like if that's all that he said to the church, that is some high praise. He says you're staying faithful to God's word, even in the face of persecution. You're recognizing and discerning false teachers. You're not compromising what I've said. And you're eagerly engaged in your faith and works of service and obedience. That sounds like they're in really good shape. And in fact, interestingly, a lot of the issues that um, that get mentioned there are issues that will come up with other churches, right? So a lot of the stuff that Jesus is going to criticize other churches for, Ephesus is doing well. So it sounds like a good church. Except verse 4, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So something's wrong. They've abandoned the love they had at first. And you might be thinking, what does that mean? Good question. Hold on to it, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. But verse 5, he goes on to say, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So whatever it means, whatever it means that they've lost the love they had at first, it's a big deal. Uh, it, 
you don't notice it unless you read through all of the letters, but there are only two churches of these seven where Jesus essentially gives a threat to the church. In this case, he says, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand. And remember, being a lampstand means being a church. So Jesus is saying, in essence, I'm going to come and cause you to cease to be a church um, because you've lost your first love. So that sounds like a big deal. So then we need to ask, obviously, what does it mean? Where did they go wrong? What does it mean that they've lost their first love? And that's actually a harder question to answer than you might think. A lot of us, I think, instinctively are like, oh, we think it means this, but once you dig into it, it's, it's not easy. So let's just walk through a couple of answers. Some people, I think this is maybe the most, when you just read it once, you know, off the top of your head, the most common one, read it as losing their passion. They think that the church, it's like it's like dead orthodoxy. They don't feel this burning passion for Jesus in their hearts anymore, even though they're going through the motions. Um, and that is a problem, but I don't think that's what it means here. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And the reason, if you look in verse 5, is that the solution for this church is to repent and do the works you did at first. So Jesus is not saying, like, you're just going through the motions. He's saying, even though you're doing all this other good stuff, there's something that you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing anymore. And it's that failure that is endangering your status as a church. Okay? So maybe another option is that Jesus means the love they've lost is their love for each other. They've lost their love for each other. They're staying faithful to Jesus, but they don't love their fellow believers anymore. And that fits better with the text. That's probably actually a real possibility for what it means. Um, and a lot of commentators would say that that's what it means. But there's really nothing else in the letter to argue for it either, right? You're kind of left thinking, well, that's a possibility. And I actually don't think that's the right possibility. So let me show you why, and then I'm going to give what I think is actually the answer. So first of all, just notice, I'm going to ask you to notice two things about this. One is the way light and lampstands are a big part of this letter. If you notice that first, it starts with this specific image of Jesus with the stars and among the, the lampstands of the church. Um, and then lampstands come up again in terms of the threat that Jesus gives the church. And in the Old Testament, that imagery of light and lamps is used to talk about Israel on their mission to the world. So, for example, from the prophet Isaiah, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus picks up that same language of light and lamps to talk about the church's role on that mission to the world. So, for example, in Matthew 5, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that image of the church as a lamp has to do with their witness. And notice in verse 5, that's what Jesus is specifically threatening to take away. The way he expresses his judgment is by saying, I'm going to come and take away um, the, the lampstand. So notice that. And then if you look at verse 4 again, the specific phrasing of losing the love that you had at first, that's not actually a very common phrase in the Bible at all. And the, the closest parallel to it in the New Testament is from Matthew 24, where Jesus says this. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, he's talking about the time after he ascends into heaven. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
That sounds familiar, right? That sounds a lot like losing the love you had at first. But what does it mean? Well, then verse 13, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the alternative to this love growing cold, losing your first love, is enduring to the end. But still, what does that mean? Well, verse 14, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So in Matthew, love growing cold means the same thing as failing to endure in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That is what it means there. A failure of witness, declaring the good news of Jesus. And given that parallel language and all the talk about light and lampstands, I think probably what Jesus is particularly criticizing the church in Ephesus for is their failure to continue to bear witness to him in Ephesus. They are a church who have lost their mission a church who have lost a love of the good news of Jesus being proclaimed before the world. Let me try to describe what that probably looked like in practice. So Ephesus, the church, is doing all these things right. They've got good theology, and they have personal piety, and they are rightly distinguishing true from false teaching, and they aren't growing weary in any of that stuff from the perspective of life within the church, right? If you just are there on a Sunday morning or whatever, you're like, okay, like we're doing all of these good things. They're doing that, but they have forgotten what those things are for. They have forgotten that the church exists for the mission of God and that they're supposed to be doing all of those things for the world. Most likely in Ephesus, here's what it looked like. Ephesus is this prosperous, wealthy city that is also very, very closely tied to the worship of idols. The temple of Artemis, right? Artemis is a, is a Greco-Roman god, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Like, that's in Ephesus. Also, the, the temple to, to, to um, Julius Caesar as a god is, is in Ephesus. It's, you know, while the ancient world always had kind of idolatry as a part of life, Ephesus is a center of that. And... Um, as they faced that reality and the persecution and struggle that came from not going along with that, I think this is the temptation that probably confronted the Ephesian church. It would be costly to publicly identify with Jesus in that city and to publicly tell others about him and invite them to trust in him. And so why not just privatize their faith, right? Keep it on the down low. And that accounts for all the things they're praised for. They're still coming together and they're worshiping God and they're teaching true doctrine and you know, they're obeying God's commandments about their moral lives, but they're just not letting anybody know about it, right? They're keeping it hidden away. They're persevering in private, but they've compromised their public love of God. If that's their failure, then that should remind us of two things. First, as a church, that should remind us, just like Ephesus, that Christianity is not meant to end with us. It's not meant to end with us here in the church. I mean, how do you measure a good church, right? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. How do you measure it? Like you could, I mean, if you wanted to, maybe you could go with just the barest like numbers and metrics, right? Like the number of people who are there or how much money they give. And there are churches that basically just measure that. There are these machines that just turn people through, right? Get bodies, warm bodies in the sanctuary and money in the offering plates. But we might say, well, that's not enough, right? Just measuring that, that's not enough. So we need to try to measure other things. And so maybe we would say, these people, they, they have to be disciples, right? So we'd start trying to measure, you know, however you do that, their discipleship. Like, are they growing in their understanding of God's word and seeking to obey him and praying and things like that? So maybe you try to measure that. 
But then you might say, but even that's not enough, right? Because also they're supposed to like love each other and be a community of people together and live life together. And I, I don't know how you measure that, but you come up with your like unity index, right? Your like community number and, you know, and you plug that in too and you do all of that stuff together. And what Jesus is essentially saying to Ephesus is he's saying, imagine a church where all of those measurable things are good, right? <laughs> where, you know, where they're nailing all of those things, which no church is, but imagine that they're doing that Um, he's saying, even if all of that was true, none of it matters if the church is not also on the mission of God. If it isn't also bearing witness to the world and seeking to show God's love and proclaim God's good news to the world, then all of that stuff, even if it's great, is for naught. How can that be true? The answer is because all of that stuff is meant to find its purpose in the context of God's mission. All of the other things we mentioned find their purpose in the context of God's mission. I mean, what good is it to get people in pews and, you know, and have them support a ministry if that ministry isn't seeking to reach the world and be on God's mission in the world? It is, um, if we don't have that as our answer for why we're trying to get people to come to church, it's the wrong answer. I mean, what does it mean to grow in discipleship, right? What kind of disciples are we trying to make? If that doesn't include people who are showing God's love and proclaiming God's love to the world, then we have the wrong answer to what discipleship looks like. Even why do we love each other? I don't know that we always appreciate that, but Jesus prays for the unity of the church, and here's his reason. He says that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So even in the ways we love each other and live as a community, the purpose is that the world might in that know that God sent Jesus and loves the Son. We as a church are called to recognize that Christianity doesn't end with us. And if we are not as a church on God's mission, then we're always in danger of ceasing to be the church at all, which is the threat to the church in Ephesus. So that is one application And then I think that application also meets us on a personal level. That's just not true of our church as a whole, although it is true, but each of us is also called to be on the mission of God. I am called to do it. And that is a calling each of us, including me, needs to struggle to continue to grow in. I, you know, over the years continue to seek to grow in that, and I'm still continuing to seek to grow in that. But it's something that each of us is called to as well. Let me try to give some flesh to that when we think about our personal lives, because I think that this is a source of guilt and discouragement to some of us, and some of that guilt is probably warranted. Take it to Jesus and seek his forgiveness, but some of that is just our sin, but some of it, I think, is also that we don't have a good picture of what that's supposed to look like. So let me try to describe to you what it looks like for someone to be on God's mission, and hopefully that will help encourage our hearts. When I try to explain this to people, usually the way I say it is that it involves doing two things. It involves engaging and inviting people, all right? Engaging and inviting. So let's walk through each of those. First, engaging, meaning the first thing you do to be on God's mission is you move into somebody's world in a Christ-like way. You um, move towards them in a Christ-like way. Maybe that means having a conversation with them about what you believe or asking them questions about what they believe. Maybe that means encouraging them as they're struggling and trying to just, you know, lift up their spirits as they're in a hard place. Maybe that means practically showing them love and charity with some issue in their lives. First, you engage, 
And it's important to say that because some people think that being on God's mission doesn't involve the engaging part, right? And that's a problem. There are a few people maybe who are called to go around sort of doing the inviting part that we're going to talk about, you know, just with everybody without any engagement. But most of us are not called to do that, right? It is not that you're supposed to like, you're checking out at the, you know, at the grocery store and they're like paper or plastic and you're like, good question. Let me ask you one. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right? Like, that is not the pattern for God's mission in most of our lives. Normally, we engage in relationship and connect with people first, but then also invite. We meet people where they are, and then we invite them to engage more with Jesus and his church. And that can take a lot of different forms. I mean, maybe that means like presenting them the gospel and inviting them to pray some prayer, but often it means other things. It could mean just inviting them to church or inviting them to come to your small group or asking them to maybe explore, discuss some questions that they have or read a part of the Bible together or pray with you. Those are all really effective, effective ways to just say, hey, like we're talking about Jesus. Do you want to take the next step with that? But what's essential to recognize is that to be on God's mission, we do need to invite as well. If some people don't engage, and that's a problem, I think the greater temptation for a lot of us is to just kind of engage, but then never (laughs) take that step of inviting somebody to walk towards Jesus, right? You talk about how much you love your church and how great it is, but like, if you don't say, do you want to come with me on Sunday? Like, I could give you a ride. All you've really done is just tell them about this great thing that they're not invited to, right? I mean, if you're, if you're just, um, just doing the engaging, you've also failed to fully be on mission. So that's the calling to do those two things. But again, I want to stress that can take a lot of forms. Maybe it means visiting with somebody about something you appreciate about the church and saying, hey, do you want to come with me next Sunday? You could get lunch afterwards. Maybe it means having a conversation with someone where spiritual things come up and you say, hey, I'd really like to like really talk about that with you if you're up for that. Could we have a conversation about that? Maybe that means um, that you, um, you know, you're, someone's wrestling and you're just like, hey, could we like meet to pray together, you know, sometimes and, you know, and work through that. Maybe it means that you're just, you know, you go fix your neighbor's fence because it's broken and they're like, oh, you're such a great person. And you're like, look, no, just Jesus has showed me undeserved mercy. And so I'm trying to show it to other people. And if you ever want to talk about that, just let me know and let's talk. But notice that can take so many different forms. But in each case, what you're doing is you're engaging people as a Christian and then you're inviting them to know more about Jesus. All right something all of us can do. So that's Ephesus, a church that's failing to live on mission. But then let's turn to Smyrna, to the next church, because I think it actually tells us something really important that helps balance out some of the challenge that a lot of us probably feel when we think about our failure to live on mission. Let's start in verse 9 to the church in Smyrna. John says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. All right. So here's what Smyrna is like. Things don't seem to be going well from the outside. They are um, struggling, right? That's the tribulation. They've had hard stuff going on, and they are poor. That probably just means economically poor, right? The people that have become Christians in Smyrna are from the lower class, and the church doesn't have much money. 
Now, John says they're rich, and that's anticipating what he's going to say in a minute. But, um, but yeah, and there's this stuff about they're facing religious persecution. You're probably wondering about that whole Jews that are actually a synagogue of Satan thing, <laughs> because that sounds pretty harsh. But here's what's going on, all right? In the Roman Empire, it is illegal not to worship the emperor and Roman gods. Like, you're actually required legally to participate in these civic festivals and offer prayers to idols. Except that um, there was an exception in Roman law for Judaism, right? When, when Rome conquered the Holy Land, um, they gave this exception to, to Jews that said, you don't have to participate in that. You, you need to pray for the emperor, but you don't have to pray to the emperor. They gave this specific exception to Judaism um, so that they didn't have to participate in idolatry. Um, and early on, Christianity was just a part of Judaism, right? The, you know, it was viewed as a sect of Judaism by, by the Romans and, and arose within Judaism. Um, and because of that, for the first few decades of the church's life, it was actually kind of protected by, um, by that same law, right? You know, so it was the Christians weren't forced to worship the emperor or idols. But there came this point where what started to happen in different cities was that there was this split between the church and kind of the the Jewish establishment centered on the synagogues, and some of those leaders started going to the governors of those cities and saying, you know, actually, Christians aren't Jews, and that exception should not apply to them. And as a result, then Christians started facing actual kind of legal persecution from the Roman government. And apparently, that's what's been happening in Smyrna, right? That's, that's what John is talking about. He's saying that these people have sort of like betrayed, you know, the Christians by going to the government and encouraging the government to persecute them. So that's what Smyrna's like. Um, it's facing persecution and struggling and small and poor. And the good news in verse 10 is that it's also going to get worse. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So they're about to face a wave of more intense persecution. A bunch of them will be thrown in prison. It says for 10 days, it's unclear whether that means that's literally a week and a half they were held in prison or whether that's an allusion back to the book of Daniel where there's um, a bunch of references to 10 days when like Daniel's facing persecution and tested and stuff. But, um, but they're facing imprisonment and then some of them might be put to death too. Presumably when he says that be faithful even unto death, that means that some of them might be killed for their faith. One note about that persecution is that it sounds a common theme in scripture about persecution in general, which is that on the one hand, persecution is a work of evil, right? It's not a good thing, and that's why he says the devil's about to do this. But on the other hand, persecution is also pictured as God's testing of the church, that it's something that God is also using to test the church. And that word test is tricky because people often hear it wrong. They think that means like God's giving like, I don't know, an exam to the church and people who score high enough are okay and people who score badly aren't or something like that. That's not the image. Instead, the idea of testing in scripture means God's revealing the true character of somebody's heart. And so what's happening is that as they face persecution, it's being revealed whether in their heart they have true faith or whether they have a faith that will not last the persecution. All right? So that means, though, that this church is about to be tested by persecution, and some of them might fall away, too. 
So things do not sound good for the church in Smyrna, right? Like none of that sounds encouraging, except here's the thing. In that description of the church, there's something that is missing that was in the letter to Ephesus and that's in almost all the other letters, and that is that there is no criticism by Jesus of the church in Smyrna. Jesus doesn't tell them they're doing anything wrong. There's only one other church out of these seven that that's going to be true for. Jesus says that they're suffering and that all these bad things are happening to them, but he has no words of correction for the church in Smyrna because Smyrna is a church that despite its trouble is being faithful in its weakness. That is its character. It is faithful in weakness and therefore Jesus sees it as a church to be praised. We're going to talk more about that in a minute and how that can be true but first, we need to just appreciate the reality of that because there's, we talked about being on mission and seeking to reach people and build up the kingdom, but there is this danger we can have um, where we confuse that call to be on mission with this goal of being successful in really visible worldly terms. Um, maybe uniquely because we're Americans. I think we have this tendency to confuse sort of outward success with inward faithfulness in terms of churches and individual lives. Um, we have, therefore, this idea that because a ministry is big and has a lot of money and followers, that it must be good. And that is not a biblical idea. Now, to be clear, neither is the opposite, right? It's also not the case that big, successful ministries are necessarily bad. It's simply that the success and visible kind of like, you know, bigness of a ministry does not correlate to whether or not they're necessarily being faithful. I still regularly encounter people who seem to assume that the most faithful preachers must be the ones with TV shows, right? They must be the ones with New York Times best-selling books. And next week, when we see Jesus' words about false teachers to several of the churches, we're going to really appreciate why that's not true. But, um, but here's the thing. The church in Ephesus, that would have been the church with the TV station, right? <laughs> like, that would have been the church that, you know, that everybody would have wanted the pastor to write a book about. But it's the church in Smyrna that is praised, even though it's small and struggling. Now again, that does not mean that we should root to be unsuccessful and not have any of those things, right? It's, the opposite is also an error, but it does remind us that we need to recognize that our calling is to faithfulness and fruitfulness is in God's hands. We should pray for and hope to see, you know, those kinds of visible things, but our calling is always to be faithful and then pray to God that we might see fruitfulness result from that. All right. So that's true, but we can still ask, how can Jesus be so optimistic about this church in Smyrna? How can they be encouraged when things are going so poorly? And that's where we need to recognize the foundation of their hope. So look at verse 8. Jesus writes to the angel of the church in Smyrna and says, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember, each of these takes a little piece from Revelation chapter 1. And here what Jesus highlights is his lordship, and particularly his lordship embodied in his resurrection, right? He died and came to life. And that's what he wants the church to be focused on. And then verse 11, again, he sounds that same theme. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's some irony going on there. He's just called people to be faithful even unto death. And by the second death, 
what John means is ultimate judgment. Um, but what he's promising, therefore, is he's saying that you will conquer even if you get killed, right? Even if you're faithful to the point where they kill you for the first time, because thanks to the fact that you've been delivered from judgment and have the hope of eternal life, therefore you have hope. So Jesus speaks the hope of the resurrection to this church in Smyrna. And they need that for two reasons. One is a kind of literal physical thing that they're facing, which is that um, we as Christians can be courageous in the face of physical persecution and death because we have the hope of our physical resurrection and new life that's secured in Jesus. Martyrs throughout history have stood before tyrants with courage in the settled knowledge that though they might destroy their body, they cannot do anything that lastingly harms them. But it's also a hope for the church in Smyrna in a deeper spiritual sense. Jesus' resurrection is. Our world has this way of looking at things that assumes that life comes from strength and health and prosperity and that as those things fail, what results is inevitably death. But the resurrection contains the mystery that God's power is at work in our death. That in our weakness and in our failing and in our struggle, God can move in us as he did in Jesus when he took his torn and battered body nailed to a cross and through that worked the ultimate conquest and victory of death and hell. The hope of Christ's resurrection provides a pattern for our hope. We are not dependent on that logic of strength and of the world but instead we can know that even in our defeats and struggles and deaths in this life, God has the power to transform them into spiritual victory. Smyrna, not Ephesus, looks like a church that's living in the hope of resurrection. And I think that's especially encouraging to us when we think about that call to mission that we talked about earlier. Like we said, there are lots of reasons that we can struggle with that call. Some is that we don't have a good picture of what that looks like and how much variety that can have. Some of that is because of just our sin in our hearts and we need to repent of that. But another part of why we struggle, I think, is because we have a deep and real sense of our weakness and our inadequacies in God's mission. I think about that a lot and worry about it sometimes as a pastor because I worry sometimes that pastors like me can actually make that worse um, because it is sort of my job and calling to be a trained expert in scripture and have answers to, to all the questions people might ask and, you know, and I'm gifted in those ways. And, um, and so there's, there's things that you do as a pastor, like, like we're having this theology on tap meeting on Wednesday, right? And what we do with those is I just sit up there and people ask questions or raise objections and we talk about them. I, and I worry sometimes that everyone has this idea that like, that calling that I have, that's what it, you have to do in order to be on mission. And if you can't do that, <laughs> that therefore you're not going to be able to share the good news of Jesus with people. Now in the first place, I am not as sinless and perfectly on mission as I should be either. So <laughs> never use me as an example. But more than that, the problem reflects this deeper sense that that mission of God, right, to share the good news with people is something that we have to have everything figured out to do, that we have to be really strong and really knowledgeable and have it, you know, and know, know everything in order to, to share the good news of Jesus. And so we think, man, I, can knew, I cannot do that, and therefore, I can't be used on God's mission. 
But that is not how this thing works. We are all called to the mission of God, and the reason we can all be called to it, the hope that we have, is that the power that is at work when we are on God's mission is not the power of our knowledge, it's not the power of like our giftedness or our ability to answer everybody's questions. The power that's at work in us as God's people when we are on God's mission is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That in that moment of his deepest weakness and helplessness and inability to do anything, that is the moment when through the Holy Spirit, God's power was winning the victory. And so that means that as we go forth on God's mission, that we can trust that we have that same spirit at work in us and so work in the world. Remember in the beginning we said that it's, it ain't the good old days and it never was. Um, that reality of the resurrection actually reveals why that way of thinking is so destructive because it puts our hope in the wrong things. Here's what I mean. When we think about the good old days, what do we mean? We mean a time when like the church was stronger or more consistent or people were friendlier to Christianity or, um, or there was something about society or something about us that was different, right? And again, A, that's always kind of a lie, (laughs) but B, even if that were true, that way of thinking teaches us to put our trust in the wrong things, because even if society is less friendly to Christianity and the church is weaker and we lack the sort of discipline and fortitude of past generations, you know what has not changed is the fact that it is our risen Lord who is from the first and the last who sits on the throne and is carrying out his mission through us. In every age, in every day, including ours, that is equally true. And that is the source of our hope. That God's mission, the church, is not built up by, um, by good, holy people. It's not built up by having a culture that's friendly to it. It's built by Jesus. And he is still on the throne. And that means that even if right now we feel like the church in Smyrna and we long for the good old days when we weren't struggling in those ways, we have the same hope in Jesus Christ. He is the same. He is the one who dwells in our midst and is at work through us. He is the one who was dead and rose again. Our hope is that he can work that same thing in each of us. Let's pray to him. Jesus Christ, you are Lord and King of your church. We put our hope and trust in that fact. Pray that you would rule us and shepherd us and guide us that we might carry forth your mission proclaiming and showing in our actions your love to the world. Pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and close by singing his praise. King, lift up your voice, on earth and all ye heavens rejoice, from world to world the joy shall ring, the Lord omnipotent is King, sing his praise, sing his praise, 
Lord of Lords, ancient of days, sing his praise, sing his praise all your days, all your days. The Lord is King, who then shall dare resist his will, distrust his care? Or murmur at his wise decrees, or doubt his royal promises. Sing his praise, sing his praise, Lord of Lords, ancient of days. Sing his praise, sing his praise, all your days, all your days. The Lord is King, bow down you must. The judge of all, the earth is just. Holy and true are all his ways. Let every creature sing his praise. Sing his praise, sing his praise. Lord of Lords, ancient of days. Sing his praise, sing his praise. All your days, all your days. Sing his praise, sing his praise. Lord of Lords, ancient of days. Sing his praise, sing his praise. All your days, all your days. Amen. Friends, it is good to worship with all of you this morning. You know, when Jesus addresses the church, on some level what that means is he's addressing each of us and all of us together. And it's that all of us together piece that is so important for us to realize. And so as you hear him speak to you and call you to his mission, look around and recognize that he is working that same thing in the people around you. And that especially means if you don't know them, you should make sure to say hello and introduce yourselves as you are people who together he is calling forward into his mission. So introduce yourselves to each other. Join us for um, fellowship time if you'd like. We have coffee and food and stuff in the fellowship hall um, out that door. And then also, um, if you have not signed up for Fall Fest and you are somebody that should be signed up for Fall Fest, um, I do not claim that the Lord audibly speaks to me, but he, you should sign up for Fall Fest, okay? Um, and then also, if you would join us on Wednesday, if you have someone you'd like to bring, that would be great as we talk about science and faith stuff at Arrow and Byron at 630. That would be great. Now go with the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace, today and always. Amen.